This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This episode is brought to you in part by Lego Technic. Lego Technic isn't just another set of Legos. It's real-life advanced building. Some sets have interconnecting rods, working gears, and even real electric motors. Technic is for the engineers, the petrol heads, your STEAM students. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com slash technic to find your next technic build. That's lego.com slash technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. Lego technic, build for real. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 7th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Megan Cantwell. On this week's show, we talk to science writer Warren Cornwall about triaging species rescue. Do we need to start weighing the cost of saving caribou against the cost of saving orcas? And we talk to Hope Michelson about her research on soot formation. Soot is in our fireplaces, in our atmosphere, and in interstellar space. And yet, until now, we didn't know how it formed. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with science journalist Warren Cornwall, based out of Washington State. Hey, Warren. Hi, Megan. The approach of conservation that you discuss in your piece is called species triage. And triage is a pretty intense word, and it's typically associated with battlefield-like conditions. How did this term emerge specifically in conservation science, and what does it mean in this context? It's a term that's been used in conservation science since the late 80s or early 90s. So it's been around for a while. And I guess you could argue that in some ways, trying to conserve species these days is a battlefield. I mean, we're in the middle of what's been termed the sixth great extinction. I've heard estimates that the extinction rate today is 100 times what it would be under more normal conditions. You know, triage originally in the battlefield was a tool for deciding how you were going to use the limited resources that you had. And they would basically decide who they could save and who they couldn't. And if you had people that seemed so badly injured that they couldn't be saved, they sort of went to the bottom of the list. When you look at that for species conservation, the question is who who winds up at the top of the list and who winds up at the bottom of the list as far as you know how you're going to spend your money. The folks who are Proponents of triage, you know, one of the things they say is, look, right now there's a ton of species that are going extinct that nobody is paying any attention to at all. And triage or prioritization at least forces you to confront 
Like, okay, here is how we are spending our money. And that means we are not spending our money on these things. That there's this whole other list of species that are on the edge of blinking out that nobody is even acknowledging. Your piece centers on the struggle to preserve what is left of Canada's woodland caribou. How do attempts to preserve this species exemplify what the current issues in conservation are? The big challenge with the caribou is that they're really sensitive to human intrusion on their habitat, and their habitat happens to overlap with a lot of natural resources that have a lot of economic value. They prefer to live in old growth forests, and then a lot of the terrain that they pass over also has a lot of oil sands and natural gas underneath it. So you have a lot of temptation to encroach on their habitat. So it makes conservation hard to do and also really costly. What are they doing that requires so much money? Probably the most cost intensive is actually setting aside habitat. This habitat that's worth a lot of money if you can cut down the trees and sell them as lumber, or if you can extract the oil sands or the natural gas. But the hands-on management efforts that get more attention are these efforts to protect herds from predation from wolves or bears or mountain lions. One of the things that they've begun doing in a few herds is capturing a number of the females in the winter when they're pregnant and then rearing them in these enclosed pens where they're sheltered from predators And then the calves that are born grow to a certain size before they're released. And the hopes are that they'll better be able to outrun predators. There's even discussion about trying to create a much bigger predator-free penned enclosure where a certain part of one of the herds would just basically live year-round. And the estimate for that is that it could cost as much as $15 million over a decade. Yeah, and unfortunately, that doesn't really address the root problem of the habitat destruction. Does it seem like a sustainable solution to them? The people who are proponents of penning efforts, none of them will say that penning alone is going to solve the problem, but it's essentially a way to keep these herds that are really in bad condition going while the habitat protections that are necessary in the long run are able to start to take effect. You know, it takes a long time for a log forest to grow back. So there are a lot of moving pieces in the caribou problem in Canada, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of endangered species all around the world. So how is conservation spending currently prioritized in most countries? If we can't save them all, then what type of species usually gets a top spot on the list? It's often species that are are charismatic in some way that have captured the public attention. It can also be species that are in the most dire situation, so the ones that are down to just a tiny fragment of their earlier numbers. You can have a species that have gotten a lot of attention due to lawsuits or due to political pressure. So, you know, a classic example would be the, the northern spotted owl, an endangered species in the United States, and really became an icon of environmentalists in the 1980s and 1990s as a tool for stopping logging of old growth on federally owned land in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, the owl became this kind of celebrity partly because of legal leverage it provided to stop logging. So who are the other players in this debate besides conservationists, also policymakers, and who's kind of leading the charge on this? This 
approach is something that has started to be embraced by some policymakers, uh, most notably in New Zealand, but it's really in its infancy in, in moving from you know, scientific conferences and scientific journals into the world of policy. So those who are in opposition to this species triage approach, what do they say are some of the unintended consequences of approaching conservation in this way? I think that people who are critics of this kind of triage approach might argue that if you embraced it, that it would make it easier for policymakers to sort of give up on a species where it's politically hard or technically hard to try to save it. It's not that one side in this debate doesn't have the interest of species at heart. It's just that they see different strategies. In some countries, they actually do have enough resources to preserve whatever endangered species are within their area, whereas in others, there may be little to no funding for conservation. So in these kind of countries with very little access to funding, do you think that species triage is something that they know about as an approach? Is it discussed there as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was interesting when I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Hugh Possingham, who is one of the leaders of the sort of scientific effort to develop this prioritization or triage, depending on what you want to call it. He really thinks that the places where this kind of approach is most desperately needed is in parts of the world where there's not a lot of uh, money for species conservation. So parts of the developing world, I mean, it's not happening in those places at this point, I think partly because they don't really have the regulatory infrastructure. Right. So that's definitely something to think about in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me. Yeah, Megan. Thanks. I hope some of it's helpful. <laughs> Warren Cornwall is a freelance journalist based out of Washington State. You can read his piece on species triage in this week's issue of Science. Stay tuned for an interview with Hope Michelson on the chemistry of soot inception. How do these complex molecules form inside a flame? Soot is a common thing in our lives. I'm talking about that black, powdery residue from fire that collects inside our chimneys and on our marshmallows. And like most commonplace things, it holds a mystery. Usually, when you heat things up, you know, set them on fire, solids become gases. But not soot. It forms. It comes together under these extreme conditions. How is this happening? Hope Michelson is here to talk about her group's work looking into this question. Hi, Hope. Hi, Sarah. So soot is kind of an odd thing. What exactly is it made of? Well, it's really interesting. Soot is made out of carbon, and carbon is a very important element in our life. Mm -hmm. It is the basis for life and really interesting chemistry. Soot itself starts out as a hydrocarbon, and you've probably heard about hydrocarbons. Fuels are very often hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do when we try to understand soot is how it goes from a hydrocarbon, which is hydrogen and carbon, combining with oxygen to make just a carbon particle. Right. The particle itself is like graphite, kind of like a pencil. So if you take soot and you smush it, you'll get a black line. So you can see that it's very similar to a lot of the things that you're really comfortable with and understand. But it turns out the soot in the atmosphere is really dangerous for our health. It causes millions of deaths a year globally. It causes air pollution, reduces air quality. It contributes to climate change. So there are a lot of reasons why we want to understand soot so that we can understand how to control it. 
Soot is actually used in some processes, right? It, it's like a pigment. What kind of things does industry make with this kind of pigment? You're absolutely right. It's very, very important in industry. There are entire companies that all they do is make different kinds of soot for pigments, <laughs> for additions to tires. So when you see a black tire, that blackness is caused by soot. It's important in making glass. So people try to generate soot in glass furnaces because when soot, when it gets hot, it radiates light and then it can distribute the energy more evenly in a furnace. So it's important in boilers. It's important for a lot of different reasons. I'm looking at a fire. Where's the soot? What's happening with the soot when I look at a flame? When you have a flame and you take a fuel, say methane, which is one carbon and four hydrogens, that molecule will react with oxygen and you'll get a lot of radicals formed. As those elements start to come together, they'll make a particle that is actually a liquid. We think it's a liquid because it has a lot of these hydrocarbons in it. So it's not graphitic yet when it's, very, when it's first formed. And then it evolves during its life in the flame. So when you look at a candle, think of soot as starting out as almost invisible when it's first formed and it starts to become darker and blacker. So the stuff that you see coming out is the black stuff that's more graphitic. And when you see that yellow part of a candle, then you know that you have soot there because that's hot soot radiating. <laughs> that's the heat that's coming out of, of the wow. particle. So you're telling us what flames are made of. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's really what caught my ear when I when I heard uh, someone talking about this paper in a meeting when they were talking about chemistry inside a flame. What was the thinking before your work about how soot forms in a flame? There are a couple of main theories that people had been working on. You were talking earlier about maybe um, particles in the atmosphere. Well, most particles in the atmosphere are made out of water vapor. You have rain droplets. And if you think about it, you start out with a gas molecule, this water. And then when you make a rain droplet, usually that happens when it gets a little bit colder and it condenses. Everyone has seen water condense on a cold glass. And then if you drop the temperature even lower, you get ice. So now you've taken a gas into a solid form by lowering the temperature. And for a long time, people were trying to understand how do we get these hydrocarbons that are in the flame to condense like you would have a water droplet condense? How do we get that to happen? How do we make them sticky enough to want to be together? Right. But that doesn't work because you form soot when you get hotter. And then if you cool it down, it still stays a solid and, and you can pull it out and you can heat it up and it's a solid. So what's happening is very different. It's a chemical process. Then for a long time, we've been trying to understand if we can't get it to condense, how can we get a chemical process to go and make the soot? So it's more like baking a cake, more like taking a liquid and turning it to a solid. You know, when you yeah. heat a cake up, it gets solid and it stays that way. So right. how would you get these gas molecules to do that? And we couldn't figure it out because they just wouldn't go fast enough. The chemistry just wasn't fast enough to make a particle as quickly as we see it in a flame. We actually figured out how you can get that reaction to go fast enough. That's what our whole paper is about. Did it start out as, as a new theory and then you tested that theory? Or did you make some observations that, that made you think, oh, well, this is what's happening? That's a really good question. I guess you were kind of triggered by some observations initially. So when we do an experiment in our flame, we do a lot of different types of techniques. And one of the techniques we do is we put a probe into a flame and we suck the particles out. 
Mm-hmm. And then we put them into a mass spectrometer. We vaporize what's in the soot or on the soot. And we look at the molecules that are there. And what we saw were these really interesting molecules called radicals. So most molecules want to have their electrons paired up. In a radical, it has one electron that's not paired. So that's a radical. And it's really reactive because it really wants to share that electron with another molecule so you can have a paired up electron. People are probably familiar with, you know, free radicals in the body. That's they're, right. That's they're right. running around <laughs> looking for friends. That's and right. <laughs> doing things that we don't want them to do. So this is also happening in a flame in, the, in those conditions. That's right. That's right. And these are very special radicals in that they really want to be a radical, but they also want to react. <laughs> <laughs> so they want to cause trouble. So they go out and they, they react with another molecule, but then they still want to be out there doing some mischief. So when they react with another molecule, they become paired up electrons, but then they pop off a hydrogen atom and they become a radical again. So it's a bigger radical. So this radical. is a bigger radical. Now they've made a bigger radical and now that can go out and bond with something else. And then it wants to become a radical again. And so you basically so you have, have a snowball. chain. It's like a snowball reaction. So we call it a chain reaction. And you saw some of these intermediates when you looked at the contents of the soot from the flame. That's right. So what happened was he saw this, the sequence of these radicals. And we're just fascinated by them because we had been doing what everyone else had been trying to do. Look at the stable species and trying to understand how they can react and how we can get them to want to stick together. And we had been kind of ignoring these, but they're bothering us because they're always there. Every frame we looked at, they were there. So we finally started looking at them and thinking about them more carefully. And one of our colleagues at Berkeley, Professor Head Gordon, gave us a paper and said, you know, I've been interested in these, these molecules too. And so we started to look at what he had done. You start to collaborate with them. And we ended up coming up with this, uh, this chain reaction mechanism. And there's a really nice illustration of this in the commentary piece here, and it shows you some of the players and kind of where they are in the flame. It's, it's yes. really, I think it really helps understand the paper. Yeah, it helped me anyway. <laughs> I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to put that in the podcast notes so people can take a look at okay. that because I think it, it really helps. What does this mean for everybody else who's studying soot? Are they going to have to start looking at these radicals so they can understand how different kinds of soot forms and, and how this process works maybe in other places where soot? is happening, like interstellar space. Well, so now this starts us thinking about a lot of different things, because if you know how it's formed, then you can control it. Yeah. If you know how, you know, what is it that actually initiates the reactions that starts formation, maybe you can try to stop those. Or maybe if you actually want to generate these different materials, maybe you can take advantage of that information to control the processes that generate these materials. But when I've talked to different people about it, they've been very excited about the possibilities because now it opens up a wide range of possibilities of different types of mechanisms and processes we can study under different conditions. Mm -hmm. But this isn't going to help us understand nucleation in the atmosphere, you know, that condensation process you were talking about. No, it's very different. But interstellar space, uh, this was amazing yes. to me, has something that's like soot in it. Is this yes. is this something that we can look for there now? Yes, absolutely. Because the processes in interstellar space that make interstellar dust, yeah. and there's lots of carbon in space. And, you know, it's amazing to think about. But a lot of the processes are very similar. In, in fact, interstellar stu- dust 
in the outflow of these very carbon-rich stars is made under very similar conditions, very similar temperature conditions with very similar what we call precursors, the species that make up the particles. And we think this is a mechanism that could work in space. That's not an area we normally work in. So (laughs) (laughs) you're just throwing it out there for other people to pursue. I see. (laughs) see. Well, that's really amazing. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, Hope. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure. Hope Michelson is a staff scientist at Sandia National Labs. You can find a link to her research and a related commentary piece at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Or you can listen on the Science website. There you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the Science Podcast, contact midroll.com, M-I-D-R-O-L-L dot com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.